Thanks for listening to Open Doors Live with your hosts, Mike Gore and James Cazina. Because of your support, we're able to bring the persecuted church to life. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au. Here's today's episode. Hello, everybody. It is Mike Gore here in the studio, and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. This week, we have another in-between episode for you. It's from a trip I took into Iraq, a country plagued by war. But I promise you, stay with us for this episode because the stories you will hear today are stories you're going to want to tell other people. This is a war of annihilation, says the United States. Mosul, Iraq's second biggest city where the Islamic State group set up its stronghold. Fighting here was vicious. IS militants dug themselves in. All this created one of the worst refugee crises in history, with millions of Iraqis displaced. Christians have been told to leave the city or risk being killed. The refugee situation in the Middle East is only getting worse. That, you know, the future, maybe the near future of this place would be something great. Okay, we can do it. We can manage it. It was my first night in Iraq. It was hot, dry, and smoky as the sunset. You could feel the tension in the city. As we drove to dinner that night, the enormity of the IDP crisis began to set in. As we drove past parklands, ovals, abandoned, unfinished cement shells of buildings, your eye was constantly drawn to the makeshift camps people had set up. Families, men, women and children getting ready to bunk down for yet another night living as an internally displaced person. I've had the privilege of traveling all over the world to meet with the persecuted church, worshipped in caves in North Africa, smuggled Bibles to people in China, met with pastors who have told me stories of persecution. I've seen firsthand people wrestle with faith in places of true conflict. But Iraq? Iraq was different. Different because I'd never seen the combination of religious persecution and war. I'd not seen refugee camps and people flooding into cities on foot with no form of identity, having lost everything because of their faith in Jesus. I've not seen a city try and come to terms with approximately one million people arriving over a short period of time, all wanting what we would consider the bare essentials of food, water, shelter, electricity, sanitation and petrol, not to mention employment and education or health services like midwifery, aged care or paediatric services. We eventually found the person we're looking for, parked the bus and made our way into a tall, slender apartment complex. It was fairly innocuous from the outside, but inside were approximately 140 IDP families. I remember the first family we met. The husband was formerly a security guard. He was big, strong, and had a presence about him that felt warm and welcoming. We heard about how they struggled when they first arrived in this city and had to sleep outside of a night with hundreds of other families. This couple has small children, and they said the challenge was at night as they slept, they would need to hold the kids as high in the air as they could to stop the rats from getting them. But it meant they got little sleep themselves. And then during the day, when the children would want to play, the parents were tired and exhausted. And they said for them, that was life day in and day out. A few days before we had arrived, the husband had secured himself a part-time job as a security guard. But it was quite some distance away and he could not afford public transport. And therefore, he needed to ride a push bike for 30 minutes to and from work. The pay wasn't great, 
but it meant that at least they had some form of income. The wife was worried, as riding a bike on a rocky road is dangerous at the best of times, let alone the hours her husband needed to work. We went from this family to another. We had come to hear the story of the last woman out of Mosul. But before we got to that, we were speaking with her grandson, Peter. Peter told us how one day he came out from church in Mosul, and there was a car of ISIS fighters waiting at the bottom of the steps. Peter and four of his friends were forced into the car, blindfolded and driven to an abandoned house where they were beaten and threatened with death. The kidnappers called Peter's father and demanded 120,000 US dollars for his release. The father wept and pleaded with them to reduce the amount as he couldn't afford it. They immediately dropped it to 110,000 US, but again, this was a price way out of his father's ability to pay. The next day, the kidnappers called the father back and said they'll take 80,000, and his father said okay. Peter's father called family and friends and anyone he could to raise the money. The day of the drop, Peter said he remembers hearing a lot of yelling, running and gunshots, and he thought this was going to be the day he died. All of a sudden, someone burst into the room where he was being held, still blindfolded. He heard someone ask where the terrorists were, but he was unable to answer them, as Peter did not know where they had gone. It turned out US troops had stormed the compound and found Peter and his four friends. The troops asked them how long they had been there, and they said since Sunday. The guards responded it was now Friday. Peter said how he had been blindfolded the entire time, and the troops chose not to remove the blindfold in case the sunlight would damage his eyes. They took him back to their base where the blindfold was removed under controlled conditions to protect his eyesight. Peter said how worried his father was, as when he went to make the drop, no one was there, and he thought something terrible must have happened. Peter said the call from the US base to his father was emotional, and Peter could not stop crying. He still is terrified that ISIS will come back one day for him. Peter then began to share his grandmother's story. She had chosen to stay in Mosul when ISIS came through in June of the year we were there. She was in her 80s and had Muslim neighbours who she got along well with and thought she could stay with them if need be. One night at 8pm ISIS came and told her she had to leave. They punched her in the face and demanded she left. She told them it was late at night and asked if she could stay with her neighbours until morning and ISIS agreed but she was no longer able to be in her own house. When she was told to leave, she only grabbed one thing. It was her Bible. It was a hundred years old and passed on from generation to generation in her family. Isis told her to convert to Islam and she simply responded, I've been serving Jesus for more than 80 years and I'm not going to stop now. She ended up staying with her neighbours until the 1st of October, well after all other Christians had fled. She called her pastor and asked him where he was. He simply responded, where are you? And she said, Mosul. And his response was, what are you doing there? After this, she left with only the Bible and the clothes she was wearing. The thing I love about this woman's response is that she has resolve in the face of terror, confidence in the saving grace of Jesus, and an assurance that he is the one true God. As a little background on ISIS, when they come through and ask you to leave, they generally give you four options. Convert to Islam, pay an exorbitant tax, leave immediately or die. It's yet another thing that makes this woman's response so powerful. She knew what this could possibly cost her and stood courageously for Christ despite all of it. As I reflected on everything I'd seen and heard on this trip, I remember speaking with a friend in Iraq and he told us how in the West 
We look at the body of Christ as arms, legs, fingers and toes, but he said, for us, we look at it as blood, bones, muscle and skin. If you remove any one element, the body falls to the ground. He said, take Catholics, for example. They're like the bones. They're rigid and traditional, but without them, the body would fall to the ground. And he said, remember, over here, when ISIS are killing them, they're not dying because they don't deny Mary. They're dying because they don't deny Jesus. The muscles, he said, well, they're like the Anglicans. Although somewhat rigid, he can still move them a bit. And the blood, well, that's like the Pentecostals, free-flowing and always changing. But you remove any one of those elements and our body falls to the ground. And he said, just like a body fighting off infection or wound, blood flow increases, muscles contract, and other parts of the body rush to that area to protect it. He said, right now, the body of Christ in Iraq is hurting and we are rushing to protect it. Another pastor told me how they had worked for years on church unity and getting the church to come together in Iraq, a problem not too dissimilar to what we face here in the West. But he went on to say what they'd been trying to achieve for years, ISIS did that for them in two weeks. He said, we thank ISIS for bringing the church together in Iraq. For me, it was a moment in time I realized, well, I'm in that body, but am I in the fight? You see, I'd overlooked the fact that the Bible is clear. There is one body, not multiple. These people are my brothers and sisters, and there is a fight happening all over the world. The question is, am I willing to help out? Thanks for listening to this in between episode by Open Doors Live. If you'd like to hear what happened in the last episode, you can find us where you listen to all your favourite podcasts.